following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, let's uh, let's begin uh, with prayer. We're going to need prayer for this passage, I'm telling you. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, seek you. We pray that you would be the one who teaches us through your spirit. We thank you for your word, and we pray for a right understanding and just the right way to communicate your truth. Uh, so give us open hearts and minds to your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, in this section, uh, Peter uh, is essentially uh, telling us to not return evil and insults with evil and insults. Right? He says instead to seek peace, to bless those who insult you. So that's my title, bless those who insult you. Have any of you ever been insulted? Okay, well, the rest of you are just not paying attention, right? I'm telling you, this is part of life, right? Um, and, of course, Peter's writing to a church uh, that was under fire, under persecution. And uh, the early church, it was new, it was radical, it was different. Nobody liked Christians back then. Uh, things may be a little different for us, although I think we live in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity. Um, but, but the truth is that these principles apply not only if you're being persecuted by, for your faith, but just if you're being picked on at all, right? Um, the, the, what he says here applies, and it doesn't, you know, we don't do this, we don't, well, I only, re, you know, bless those who are mean to me and insult me if they're doing it for my faith. They're doing it for any other reason. <laughs> I can be mean back. Okay, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying um, that we we are to respond to harsh people, critical people, uh, angry people, mean people uh, with kindness. Right now, uh, if if we're honest with ourselves, first of all, we'll admit that this does happen to us. Right, there are those people who who would who would ridicule us, who would, who would insult us, who would do mean things to us, either intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, we would also say that uh, Peter's focus here is, is, is really the world, that these things shouldn't happen in the Christian community. But we know that even in the Christian community, people can say insensitive things, hurtful things, right? Even our brothers and sisters in Christ, even in our own family or marriages, right? And if we're honest, uh, I, I'm honest, uh, I, I can say that when uh, people are unkind to me, I don't feel like being kind back. Right? Uh, everything in me wants to respond kind for kind. I want to repay them in the same way that they have treated me. Right? That's kind of our nature. Um, uh, it is our natural response to respond in like kind. Right? If people are mean to us, we want to be mean back. And we'll talk about it in a minute why, why that is. But he says, no, we're supposed to respond to this Mistreatment and evil and insults with blessing. Now, you know, it's one thing to have people treat you badly and just kind of ignore it, um, keep our mouth shut, um, but, uh, you know, not to, to not be mean back. But to take the extra further step of actually blessing them, well, this is just asking really too much. Right? This is really too much. You want us to actually... Re- Respond by being kind and nice and blessing them. 
you know, Peter, what planet did you come from? Right? This is just so contrary to human nature. Right? At least my human nature. But Peter says, no, we need to do this. Right? This is vitally important. So let's, let's look at why. Right? Peter talks, he, he gives the instruction uh, in the first few verses. Then he unpacks why it's so important in the, in the next and the remainder. So let's look at this and see how we can do this. How can we be the kind of people who respond this way, who, who genuinely seek peace and the well-being and goodness of even our worst enemies? How do we become this kind of person? And why is it so important? Well, first of all, um, Peter does make a case for, for why this is the right response. Why do we respond rightly by blessing instead of being mean in return? And so he says, don't repay. Don't pay back evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Reviling is another kind of more complicated word for insult. Right? Don't pay back insult with insult. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Right? Don't seek to get even, but bless. Right? Um, now, as I said, probably most of us are not going to be uh, insulted or persecuted for our faith or not a lot anyway but uh, but this is kind of part of everyday life um, and uh, just driving down the road you know we can feel insulted when people cut us off or drive kind of aggressively right do you feel insulted I feel quite insulted right and how do I respond do I bless them by giving them extra space not usually no right why is this so hard right why is it so hard to do this why is it so hard to repay uh, instead of with, uh, kind, with evil, with kindness? Well, I think it goes way back to when we were small children. And, you know, there's this phrase in English, I don't know if you know this phrase, but it says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's a lie, right? That's just an all-out lie. And I don't know came up with that, but they just had no, they had no idea, right? I'm telling you, words hurt hurt. They hurt. And oftentimes they're intended to be hurtful. Uh, And insults and ridicule and scorn are intended to be hurtful. People say mean things to us because they want to be mean and they want to push us down. Uh, And and the the truth is that in the world, because of our fallenness, because of our sinfulness, uh, one of the ways that we make ourselves feel better one of the ways that we kind of raise ourselves up uh, in our own eyes is by pushing others down. Right? And we learn how to do this pretty early on, probably before we even go to school, but it really picks up steam when we start school. Kindergarten, right? Kindergarten. And in kindergarten, you're with all these other kids, and you think, how can I be special in this classroom? How can I stand out? Well, you look at yourself and you say, well, there's not much spectacular about me, so I can't really bolster my own self, but look at, look at the nose on that guy. Right? Look at that girl's hair. Look at the way that kid dresses. Right? Well, I'm clearly better than that. And so to make ourselves feel better, we feel it's our mission to point out everybody else's flaws and faults. Right? And uh, kids, boy, Grade school kids can be ruthless about this, right? And uh, they can pick on us for all kinds of things that are wrong with us. Oh, you wear glasses, or your hair is too curly, or your hair is too straight, or it's too short, or it's too long. Your pants are too short, or too bulky, or too baggy, or too this, right? Your shirt's the wrong color. You have bad breath. You have a big nose, right? Uh, All these things. Uh, For me, I was gifted with a, a very clever name, Tim Dunham. Now, what do you think kids in grade school did with my name? Right, Tim Dumham, Tim Dum Dum. I had a track coach who called me Tim Tim Dumman. Right? He thought that was so funny. He just thought that was so funny. My track coach. Right? So what happens is uh, when people call us names and they pick on us, they point out our faults, they make themselves better. They make us feel shame and worthless, unimportant, invaluable, insignificant, dishonored, unloved. Right? We feel bad. We don't like it. And so everything in us uh, says, no, I am not the loser that you say I am. Right? And we want to push back against that with our own, you know, words. 
And it's like, well, yeah, I may be down here, but you're even down lower, right? So we retaliate with our own feedback, our own insults to make ourselves feel better by making them feel worse, right? And everything in us screams out, I'm not a loser, right? And some of that has to do with our pride, which is sinful, but some of it has to do with this fact that God created us with a sense of inherent glory, right? We were created in God's image, and we have this sense that our life has purpose and meaning and significance. And, and so we know that we are more than a loser, uh, and we want to be respected in the world. We want to be valued, right? So, so that's what goes on. And, and from grade school on, those, those scars, those wounds, those hurts just get exaggerated. And somehow when you're 60 years old, it's still a problem, right? And maybe it goes all the way back to when we were a kid and we just feel those same things. And people say things or do things and uh, that we perceive as evil or insulting. And instantly, right, do we respond with kindness? No, right? I want to be mean back to them. But Peter says, don't do that. Don't do that. On the contrary, strongest possible uh, way of saying, don't do that, but instead do this. He says, bless. Bless. And bless simply means to speak well of someone. Uh, to bless someone, one commentator writes, is to extend to that person the prospect of salvation or the favor of God. It corresponds to praying for someone, except for the words are directed to the person instead of to God. Say, so bless them. You speak words of kindness. You speak words to invoke God's favor. You treat them with respect and honor where they dishonor you. <clears throat> right? Do not repay evil for evil for evil or insult, but for insult, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, so that you may obtain a blessing. Right? You were called to this. Jesus called you to be a different kind of person. Right? And there's probably no area in our life where this this difference is illustrated, right? That no longer are we to retaliate, to pay back, get even, but we are intent to seek for the best and the goodwill uh, goodwill and welfare of that person by blessing them. Uh, So we would ask the natural question, well, why, right? Why should we do this? Uh, Well, you could say because God told you to, and that's kind of the first part of his answer, right? He actually quotes from Psalm 34. So he goes back to the Old Testament, digs up this psalm, and in Psalm 34 it says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So in short, what this psalm means is that he says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Okay. In other words, who wants life to go well? Anybody? Anybody here hoping life will go well? I am. We all want life to go well. He said, well, if you want life to go well, then guard your tongue. Be careful what you speak. Don't speak evil, right? Uh, He says, uh, turn from evil and do good, secondly. And thirdly, seek peace and pursue it, right? Uh, These are kind of a code of ethics. He says, this is what's always right. It is always right to speak Not deceit and not hurtful things, but to speak good things. It is always right to turn from evil and do good, which is to show kindness and generosity to people, to love them. And it is always right and good to seek peace and pursue it. But the way this works for us is, is this how it works for us? We say, well, yeah, of course. Of course it's always the right thing to speak good things. It's always right to do good. It's always right to seek peace. Except... Except when somebody's mean to me, right? If somebody sins against me, our thinking goes like this, right? If somebody sins against me, I have a right to sin, right? I have a right. Well, we don't, but we don't quite put it in those words, do we? Because we know sin is always wrong. But somehow, returning their bad words with bad words is not wrong because they started the fight, right? They started it. And somehow I am just, I am justified to respond this way. It's right. It is my right. Right? So we tend not to think of it as, as sin. <clears throat> but, but here's what he's saying. This is what the psalm, my interpretation of it, what Peter's, I think, interpretation of it is, is that when you, turn, when you return evil with evil, it's still evil. Right? 
When you sin, even though it's a response to somebody's sin towards you, guess what? It's still sin. When you say bad things to people, even if it's in response to the bad things they said to you, guess what? It's still sin. Right? The sin of others never gives us the right or permission to sin. Right? It never cancels out its moral rightness or wrongness. Right? If it was wrong for them to treat you that way, then it's equally wrong for you to treat them that way. Right? right? Oh, it's like, oh, well, that's, oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that just takes away my justification, my excuse, my reason. But that's what he says here, right? Um, we, we don't get permission to be evil just because other people are evil, right? Uh, and he says, um, right, we, we are to do the right thing because God will bless those who are righteous, right? And righteousness means always doing the right thing, right? Always speaking good, always speaking right, always speaking encouragement and blessing, right? Always seeking peace, right? It's always the right thing. And, and he says, God, God will bless you uh, when we do that. Um, uh, he will bless you now of course we saw in Job that this blessing is not it's not a law it's not a guarantee but in general if you live a good life if you do good things if you seek the benefit of even your enemies God will bless you and Peter doesn't unpack that a lot because uh, he really moves on to something more important and, and uh, there's, there's so, so one reason we do this is to live a blessed life right God's going to watch out for you. He's going to care for you better if you're pleasing him, if you're doing what's right. But there's a more important reason, which he jumps into in verse 13. He says there's also another reason why this is so critically important that you, you, you respond with blessing. And he says in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And he's just encouraging them, you know, probably if you're this kind of person who's kind, who responds with goodness and grace, chances are people are not going to pick on you, right? These are not the people that, uh, that most people don't like, right? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, this gets more to the heart of the matter, literally, literally the heart. right? In your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Right? He says, chances are you're not going to suffer that much if you're a kind person. But, but we know that there are people who will be mean to you because you're nice. <laughs> there will be people who will be kind to you because you are good. And there will be those who will persecute you because you stand up for the name of Jesus. Right? We know that's true. That will happen. Jesus promised it, right? But he says, don't worry about them. Don't be troubled about it. But he said, instead, seek to honor Christ as holy in your heart. Okay, seek to honor Christ as holy in your heart. Literally, uh, it could be translated to make Jesus sacred in your heart. Right? So what does it mean to make Jesus sacred in your heart? Uh, in our modern world, we've kind of lost the concept of, of sacredness. Right? What does it mean for something to be sacred? Well, it goes back into the Old Testament times and even uh, early in, 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 in the history of humanity where there was this idea that there were earthly common things that were everyday, but there were other things that were really reserved and set apart for God. They were holy. They were, they were special and unique and reserved only for the purpose of service to God. Right? So, uh, the, the, in, my, in my experience, the closest thing I can get to this is when I was a kid, we had these very special dishes, right? Special china. They were very fancy, hand-painted, very elegant. And to go with it, we had very special silverware that was actually made out of real silver. And I was just in awe that, you know, we could eat with real silver. I thought my mom should just take it, melt it down, and sell it. It would be a much better use. But this is special stuff. And uh, we didn't eat our everyday breakfast <coughs> with this silverware or with these dishes, right? It was saved for very special occasions, usually some holiday <coughs> like Thanksgiving or Christmas. And usually uh, some very special people were coming over. 
And so these were, in a sense, sacred. That gets close to the idea, except for the, the difference is that um, what would have made these really sacred is if we saved them only for when Jesus came to dinner, right? So, so sacred has this idea of not just that it's special, but it's holy. It's for God alone. We only use this to, to honor and revere, to worship, to make God special, to set him apart as unique and holy and special, treasured, right? And so what it means to set Jesus apart as holy, as sacred, is it means that in our heart we treasure and honor Jesus above everything as God, right? Not just because he's, he's nice, not because he, he's good, but because he's God. He's holy, right? And we honor him as such. We worship him and exalt him. We celebrate uh, his glory, as unique, one-of-a-kind Jesus, right, as God, as God's Son. Of course, it doesn't mean that we honor Jesus as holy and we don't honor God. <laughs> okay, we see that Jesus is God, right? It's a triune God, one being. Uh, uh, Jesus is the ultimate revelation and expression of the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, we honor this triune God. We set him apart as sacred, as holy in our life. And if that's true... It means that nothing else competes, right? And it means that our very heart is reserved for him alone. Right? So we don't love other things. We don't love money. We don't love other people more than him. We don't even love ourselves more than him. We love him above all. He is sacred. He's in a unique place. And our heart is devoted to him. Right? And if that's, the, if that's what we do, he says... So when you're feeling this, just remember, you are to honor Christ as holy. You are to make him sacred and special. You are to worship him above all. Right? Um, and when we do that, then uh, in Peter's thinking, and he does it, he kind of makes a jump here, but uh, it's here. He, he's, he's, he says, look, if, if this is true of you, if you are honoring Christ as holy, then your greatest passion and heart and desire is going to make Christ, is to be uh, making Christ holy in the world. Right? To see the name of Jesus revered and honored by lost, broken people in the world. Right? So he says on the next thing, he says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Kind of a big mouthful, right? Uh, basically he says, uh, if you're honoring Christ in your heart, then you're always going to be prepared to give a good answer for Jesus, a good answer for the gospel, uh, to explain well why you follow Jesus and why, you, why your hope is in him. Right? When they ask you why you are so positive about the future, why you are so hopeful, when they see in you this overwhelming joy, even when your life is hard, and they say, what's wrong with you, right? Why are you so happy when things are going so bad? Why, why when I pick on you and I mean to you and I insult you, why do you respond with such kindness? What is wrong with you? You're weird. Because <laughs> you would be weird, right? That's not how it works in the world. And they say, why? We don't say, well... I just, this is my personality. No, it's not your personality, right? You say, no, uh, I follow Christ, right? He died. He paid the penalty for my sin. He has given me new life. He has changed my character and he is conforming me to be like him. And this is how Jesus responded in the world. So this is how I want to respond, right? He is my hope, right? And what I think is significant it is, is that often... It is our very suffering that gives us this kind of opportunity, right? People are not likely to wonder why you're so happy when you're healthy, prosperous, everything's going well, like you have plenty of money in the bank, you're driving a fancy car. Nobody's going to ask you why you're happy then. It's like, well, of course you're happy. That's how the world is. You know, you've got everything you want. Of course you're happy. That's what Job said. That's what the, uh, Satan said to God about Job, right? Well, of course Job's happy. You've blessed the socks off of him, right? But when life, life goes bad, when things are difficult, when you suffer, 
and you still have the joy of Christ. That's what people notice. So, are we likely to suffer? Well, it might be a, a strategic part of our witness. Right? It might be a strategic part of our witness. And it's at that time we need to be ready to give an answer, to point people to Christ. That's what it ultimately means to bless them. Right? Bless them isn't just to respond with some kindness, but it's to respond with the ultimate kindness of pointing them to Christ so that they can know him and find salvation in him. Right? And he says we give this answer uh, with, uh, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revalue your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Right? Uh, we're to do it with a certain attitude of gentleness, of respect, and of good conscience. Right? Now, some of us are good at giving an answer, but the answer kind of comes off like a hatchet, <laughs> like, like or a baseball bat that we beat people over the head with. I'll tell you what you need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the truth, right? I'm going to bash you up with the truth. And I'm going to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. That's not the spirit. That is not the spirit. Unfortunately, that's was kind of my spirit when I was young and zealous. I wanted to, I wanted to defeat people, right? Uh, that's not the spirit, right? We do it with gentleness and kindness, respect, a good conscience, right? We gently point them to Christ by giving them a humble and gracious answer of what Christ has done in us and, and for us. And he says that the result of this is that they will be put to shame. Right? Um, that could mean a couple, be translated a couple different ways. One, it could mean that they come to such a, a strong feeling or sense of doing wrong that they repent and turn to Christ. Right? That, they, that they see our, our kindness, our response, our answer, and it, it wins them to faith in Christ. They go, wow, I, I want that same Jesus. It could also mean that uh, on the day of judgment, uh, they will shown, be shown to be shameful in their conduct. Right? The people will see, look, this person was kind to you. They were respectful to you. They were trying to show you life, and yet you still just bash them. Right? And, and it will make them feel shame on the day of judgment. In short, either way, the point is... Uh, our very witness, uh, the very name of Jesus is at stake by how we respond to those who are mean to us, right? those who insult us, those who are insensitive or critical. Right? Um, does our testimony to Christ matter more than our own getting even? That's what Peter's saying here. Says, look, if you honor Christ in your heart above everything, if you're trying to make Him holy and sacred in your own heart, then what's going to matter to you more than anything is the name of Jesus. That it would be honored by people everywhere, even by your enemies. And your burden in your heart will be that they would come to know this Christ and worship Him. And so you'll live and conduct your life in a way that you are proclaiming Christ and his goodness, not by beating people over the head with the gospel, but through gentleness and kindness and respect, pointing them to the life-changing work that is available for them if they will only receive him. Right? We are his witnesses and his, his representatives in our words and in our attitudes and in our actions. Right? And it never shines brighter. The gospel will never shine. Christ will never shine brighter in your life than when you're under attack and you respond with blessing. Right? Uh, I wish Peter would have stopped there. Peter, you know, this would have been a good place to just stop, like just right here. But he doesn't. He goes on and he has uh, more encouraging words. And they are encouraging, but there's some really confusing stuff here. So let's kind of wade through some of this confusing stuff briefly. Uh, we're not going to get too bogged down in it, but let me just read his final word on this, right? His final conclusion as he's trying to encourage them, as they feel the, the, the pain of people picking on them and being mean and insulting them. He says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay. So if you, if, uh, if you know anything about anything, like there's some things in here that you're going to be like, well, what in the world is he talking about? What, what is this Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison? Right? After somehow he died. What is that about? What does Peter mean when he says that baptism saves you? All right, I thought Jesus saved us. Why does Peter say baptism saved us? What does baptism have to do with Noah and the flood? All right. Short answer, I don't know what in the world Peter was thinking. Right. Uh, all we can do is make some guesses here. Uh, but, but let's unpack this. Right. And one thing we want to do from the very start as we look at this complicated passage briefly is to understand his main point. Right? What is the point Peter is trying to make here by all of these analogies and kind of rabbit trails? Well, his, uh, and, and it's important to know that this is basically one long sentence in the Greek. So from uh, verse uh, 18 through verse 22, this whole long section is basically one thought. Right? And, uh, and it begins with the death of Jesus, but it climaxes with the resurrection, right? And his ascension and his victory over evil. And what Peter's kind of point here is that, yes, Jesus suffered. He suffered, just like you suffer. But in the end, guess what? Jesus wins. Go Jesus, right? And the promise is, yes, you suffer. But if you're in Christ, you share his victory. In the end, you win. You win. Okay, so that's his point. Uh, let's see how he gets there. All right, so he starts off, he does start off first with the fact that Jesus did suffer. And he suffered ultimately for our gain. Right? Uh, Jesus, it says, he came and he suffered uh, once for all for sin. Right? So Jesus took upon himself our sin and he took the penalty of our guilt when he died on the cross. Uh, the wrath of God that belonged to us that we deserve was poured out on Christ on the cross. Uh, did he deserve it? No. Right? Uh, did he deserve even the slightest thing that happened to him? No. Cause, why? Because he was righteous. He was perfectly good. He deserved none of it. But he died for the unrighteous. The very best for the very worst. And he took on, upon himself our sin and our guilt. Um, to save us, to deal with our sin, so that it says he might bring us to God. Okay, now, now this is important. And if you like to underline in your Bible, this is a verse you should underline. Right? Why did Jesus die? I, I, I would guess that if we asked 100 Christians, why did Jesus die? They would say, well, he died for our sins. Right? How many of you would say that? Well, I hope you would say that because it's true, right? Jesus did die for our sins. But is that the ultimate reason he died? No. Right? He died for our, our sins so that he could bring us to God. The ultimate end of salvation, the ultimate end of Jesus' sacrifice was to bring us into the very presence of God. Like, here's the difference. Imagine a guy's uh, proposing, wants to get married, finds a girl who actually will put up with him, right? And she kind of likes him. And so he gets a ring, and he goes, and he's going to propose. And he says to this girl, you know, I've been single my whole life, and I, I've decided I really don't like singleness. Singleness is a problem for me, and I don't like it. And I don't want to be single anymore, so will you marry me? And she's like, um, well, do, do you love me? Well, I don't know. I don't know. That's not really important. I just don't want to be single anymore. Okay, does she say yes or no? Well, she slaps the guy, right? It's like, what's wrong? You're being selfish, right? Well, that's kind of what it is when we say, salvation is just about getting my sins to deal with, and I don't really care about God, right? And yet, 
so often we get so focused on, on the sin problem. That's exactly what we do. We make salvation all about me and my sin. Not about my relationship with the God who created me and wants to restore me to fellowship and communion with Him, to be in His presence, to live eternally with Him. Right? If you want your sin dealt with, but you don't want God, you are missing the point. And you're missing what Jesus died for. He died ultimately to bring you to the Father, to bring you into God's presence where you can live with Him forever in joyful fellowship and communion. Right? Uh, that's the ultimate blessing that we are blessed with. Uh, now, of course, the sin, dealing with sin is a requirement, right? Uh, sin has to be removed so that we can come into God's presence. But the ultimate goal, Peter says in, in chapter 2, verse 9, but you are saved so you could be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, right? to belong to God, to be with him. Right? So Peter says that's, that's why Jesus died. But in order to do this, right, in order for Jesus to bring us into God's presence, he goes on to say that, uh, that it's not enough, Jesus, enough for Jesus to die, but he also had to rise again. Right? This is where the resurrection becomes critically important. If the only deal was with, was with our sin, Jesus could have just died and stayed dead. Right? Now there's some other theological reasons why that also would be a problem, but here, with Peter, uh, the, the point is that um, there's more to the story and that more depends on the resurrection. Because as Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, he brings us with him into God's presence. And so the resurrection is crucial. right? It's part of the whole package. It's not just that Jesus died for us, but also that he rose again and ascended and is seated at the heaven and he says, finally, that he has brought to subjection, he's brought under his dominion, every enemy. Right? Uh, so he says, um, he says that uh, Jesus died in the flesh, but he is raised in the spirit. Uh, another huge kind of theological problem here. Uh, does this, is Peter saying that Jesus didn't, wasn't resurrected bodily, right? That somehow he just became like a ghost. Raised in the Spirit. Well, no, that's not what he means, right? Um, what he means is that when Jesus died in the flesh, the flesh represents all that is fallen and broken in of this world. Right? Jesus died in the flesh to deal with all of our sin and the brokenness of this world. But he, he's raised in the Spirit. That is, the Spirit represents all that is eternal and good in the heavenly spirit, spiritual realm. Uh, one commentator puts it this way. The statement that Christ was made alive in the spirit, therefore, means simply that he was raised from the dead, not as a spirit, but bodily, as the resurrection always implies in the New Testament, and in a sphere in which the spirit and power of God are displayed without hindrance or human limitation. In other words, he was raised bodily, but in a spiritual realm. Right? He could go to heaven. He could live in the heavenlies. We can't, right? Because we still live in an earthbound, fleshly body. But one day we, like Jesus, will get a new body, a spiritual body. Does that mean we're ghosts? No, it's a body. It's a physical, literal body. But it's a, a body that's suited and fitted for heaven. And, and that's the, we know Jesus had that kind of body. Right? So he could ascend to heaven. Okay, then it goes from bad to worse. He says, as he's made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, now what in the world is that this about? Well, I don't want to get bogged down with it. There are several possibilities. Um, apparently, these spirits were around at the time of Noah, right, he says. Uh, it's a strange and difficult verse. The good news is it's not super important to Peter's argument, but, but basically I think this is what he's saying. Uh, he is not saying that he went to preach to people in Noah's time so they could be saved. Okay, and that gets taught. Right? And I've, I've heard that, and you may have heard that. That somehow Jesus went back to the spirits, the, the people who lived in Noah's time, and he preached the gospel with them and said, Any, anybody want to get saved? And he, you know, people raised their hands. That's probably not what happened. Right? Um, and I won't go into all the reasons why. But probably what he's talking about here is evil spirits 
who, who were roaming the earth at the time of Noah and before and probably after, but that uh, were confined in prison until the day of judgment and revelations and other passages talk about that, that, that there are fallen angels, fallen spirits that have been imprisoned and set aside for the time of God's final wrath and judgment. And what did Jesus proclaim? Was he giving them the opportunity to get saved? No, <laughs> right? He's proclaiming his victory over them. Right? He's proclaiming that he has conquered them at last and they are doomed and defeated. Right? And that's really fits best the context because this whole passage ends this way in verse 21 and 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on high, he won, right? He won. And every power, every evil, every demon, every authority falls under Jesus' absolute rule. Um, now, of course, God was God before. I don't know how the death of Jesus somehow brought about a final accomplishment of that, but it does, right? He defeated sin. He defeated death. He silenced the accuser. And he wins. Right? There is triumph and there is victory. Right? Oh yes, but there's still more problems to deal with. Okay? <laughs> then, Peter, the, my favorite of all, I will, we'll kind of, this is getting to the end here. The, the, my favorite of all, uh, Peter says, yeah, and this is, this is a picture um, uh, of Noah uh, while he was uh, in, in the days were saved and, 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 and Noah and his family were saved in the ark from the flood. And he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. This is complicated. Um, so, he says, it's a, he says it's a type, an anti-type. He says it's a picture. Baptism... Noah is a picture of baptism. How is it a picture? Well, the main thing is that they both have to do with water. Okay, Noah was saved, it says, through water. Um, Now, we might think of him as being saved from the water, but Peter saw it differently. He saw that um, that for, for Noah, the water made it possible for him to float above the destruction and the judgment, right? So it's not actually the ark that saved him, Although you could argue that it was the ark. Okay, I'll give you that. But he says that the water saved him. Okay, we'll give Peter that. He thinks differently about this than I do. Okay, I'll give you that. Uh, Likewise, we are saved through baptism. Okay, a couple of things to note here. First off, Uh, was it the water that actually saved Noah? Well, in one sense, yes, right? It did float him up above destruction that was happening in the waters below. There's a sense in which it did save him. There's a sense in which the ark saved him, that he was in that boat and it protected him. But ultimately, who saved Noah? Well, God did, right? God's the one who warned him. God's the one who gave him instructions about building the boat. God's the one who gave him the physical ability to to build the the boat and, and showed him how to make it so it wouldn't sink. In the end, really, God saved Noah. But he did it through the means of things like the boat and the flood. Right? And maybe we could even make the case that, that through the flood, uh, Noah was proven to be saved, redeemed by God. Right? Well, likewise, this is a picture of, of baptism. Uh, and he says that water baptism saves us. Uh, well, again, uh, taking all of the New Testament into account, baptism by itself doesn't save you. Right? But there is some correspondence. There is some, there is some way that it's a type or a picture. Now, what did Peter have in mind by this picture? I don't completely know, right? But, but here's his explanation, right? Uh, interestingly, he says that baptism doesn't cleanse the body from dirt. Okay, now how many of you kind of have that picture of baptism? That when I get baptized, it's this picture of, of cleansing, Right? Does salvation involve your cleansing? Yes. But for Peter, that was not the focus of of baptism. 
That is, Jesus washed and cleansed our sins. Yes, the Bible does speak of that. But, but that's not how Peter saw baptism, right? Uh, and I think the point is that, um, for sure, Peter sees baptism as more than just a cleansing ritual. Again, a commentator helps us out here. Marshall says in his commentary, Peter clearly does not mean that this is uh, in any material sense, as if an outward rite could convey spiritual salvation, or in a magical sense, as if water possessed some spiritual power, or in any automatic way, so that anybody who is baptized is saved. And unfortunately, I know, I know people who think this. They think, well, if I could just get my kid dumped, then I don't have to worry about them anymore. Well, sorry, it does not work that way. Salvation is ultimately a work of Christ uh, applying the, the work of the cross and the resurrection to a person's heart. All right? Baptism is clearly only an outward symbol of that. Uh, but what's important is that in Peter's explanation, he connects baptism more with the resurrection than with the cross. Right? So for Peter, now Paul would see it differently. right? And so Peter and Paul don't line up on this exactly, but they don't disagree. They just, they just say it differently. Peter connects baptism with the resurrection. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection. Through the resurrection. Peter, for Peter, salvation is more than just having your sin dealt with, remember, or having your soul washed. For Peter, what is the ultimate goal of salvation? I told you this, so if you can't remember, I'm going to be super disappointed. Right? The ultimate goal of salvation is to bring us to God. That's right, you guys get an A for the day, A+. Plus, right? To bring us to God. Right? And, and what, I think what Peter's saying is here is that he focuses on the final end of salvation. That through the resurrection, we are brought with God, into his, with Jesus, into his ultimate victory and triumph through resurrection, ascension, and subjecting all the powers to himself. Right? He sees more of the whole focus of salvation from the cross to our eternal glorified state with Jesus. Right? And the baptism pictures all of that somehow. That it's ultimate salvation. So that we would be presented to God as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter sees baptism encompassing this final goal of salvation, not just the first requirement of cleansing. Right? So, um, we, we won't talk about the conscious part, um, but, but just quickly, does baptism save us? Well, yes and no. Like the flood, I think baptism is critical, right? But it's not the act of getting dunked that saves you, it's Jesus. It's the cross it's the resurrection. It's being brought up with him into very, God's very presence. But, as uh, Marshall continues on, for Peter, the word baptism symbolically represents the whole process by which the gospel comes to people and they accept it in faith. So I will say this. Baptism is, is important. Right? If you think, well, you know, baptism is kind of an optional thing. I trust Jesus, but baptism is optional. Uh, think again, right? Dig into the word. I think, I think scripture is clear that it is a step of faith that we act out our, our trust in Jesus through submitting to water baptism. Um, okay, so let's wrap up all this, conclude. So what is his point with all this? Okay, remember I said that his point is not to get so much bogged down with pictures of baptism and Jesus proclaiming to the spirits. It is to highlight uh, this grand climax of the resurrection, ascension, and triumph of Christ. Right? Uh, whatever he's trying to affirm about baptism and the work of salvation, the important thing is the focus on the resurrection of Jesus and our participation with it. Right? Jesus rose. He ascended to heaven. He is seated with God. He proclaimed his triumph over the evil spirits, and now every rule is subjected to him. Right? And, and we share in his victory. Right? So in verse 17, Peter says this, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
better to suffer than doing evil. And what he means by that, I believe, is it's better to be in a position where we are suffering for, for our faith than to be, uh, at the end, judged by God as a wicked, evil person. In other words, he's saying, look, yeah, you're suffering, and you have enemies, and you have people who are picking on you, but truly, it is better for you than for them. It is better for you than for them. Remember that. Because remember how the story ends. Yes, people may call you a loser today. And maybe you kind of are. <laughs> you know, maybe your pants are too short. Or, you know, maybe you do, your nose is too big. Mine certainly is, right? Uh, maybe uh, you're not perfect. That's not where the story ends. The story ends with the resurrected, ascended Jesus sitting on the throne, conquering every enemy. And someday God will judge the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you are in Christ, you will be uh, declared not guilty. And you will share in his victory. And every person who picked on you and every person who laughed at you and every person who scorned you because of your faith in Christ will stand ashamed. Right? It's way better for you than for them. It is way better for you than for them. So honor Christ in your heart. Right? Seek to be a witness to his glory. And as Paul says in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is better for you than for them. It is better to suffer now than to suffer then. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.